So you probably are aware that this practice of mindfulness that we're doing here is becoming more and more mainstream by the moment that um, not so many days ago there was an editorial about uh, mindfulness in the New York Times. Of course, it had like chock full of misunderstandings, so there's a part of me going, oh no, you know. But it's okay, because in the emails that follow the editorial, they're all, everybody else was explaining <laughs> what I wanted to explain. <laughs> then a cartoon that just, I just saw of a couple, this is in the post, I think, on a date, and he's saying to her, my new philosophy is to live in the moment, you know, unless the moment uh, sucks, and then I live in some other moment. (laughs) And the date's going, yeah, that works for me, you know. (laughs) Anyway, um, so one of the more Western ways that um, we talk about a really an integrated spiritual path, a mature spiritual path, is really how when stress arises, we respond. And it's not a small thing because the given of being in a body and being in relationships with others and aging, sickness, death and everything else that happens is that stress comes daily. And so rather than thinking of spiritual path as often a mountain somewhere in a cave, you know, often some rapturous bliss, it's really the integrity of day-to-day, moment-to-moment as the stuff arises, as our different fears and hopes and pressures and demand, as it happens, is there some capacity to pause and regard with wisdom and with compassion what's there? And really there are two different possibilities and we all do them both at times. And one is that when it becomes difficult we go into a chain of reactivity. And the chain of reactivity when it's difficult is that we take it personally, something bad's happening to me. We either blame ourselves, we blame someone else, we go into obsessive thinking, we go into a whole emotional state, then we have more judgments of how maybe we shouldn't be doing that emotional state because that means we're not really being spiritual and, and so on and so forth. So we do a chain reaction. What we're not doing is having something difficult come up and just in some way forgiving or accepting, oh, it's like this right now. So the alternative to the chain reaction is an awareness that we pause and that pause has some awareness that, oh, okay, this is what's happening. So the Buddha describes suffering as a chain reaction. He describes suffering, sometimes he had the metaphor of of two arrows and that the first arrow is this inevitability that these bodies get sick, that we inevitably feel anger or fear or hatred or that other people don't cooperate, that inevitability there's an arrow. And then the second arrow is that we make it all wrong. We judge ourselves or others and say, bad. And I think one of the telling expressions of this is in the... has all to do with the word sin, which really the meaning of the word sin is to miss the mark. It's like this humanness that we get caught and we get in a trance and we miss the mark, we make mistakes, others make mistakes. And that's kind of a neutral, oh, okay, that's just what happens. And then there's the way sin becomes a kind of demonization where there's a sense of this is evil, you're bad for missing the mark, I'm bad for missing the mark. Do you sense the difference between those two 
expressions of sin. So again, the suffering is the chain reaction where we add on to the pain the sense of badness and wrongness. I like uh, this description in Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. This is by Annie Dillard. She says, I read about an Eskimo hunter who asked the local missionary priest, if I did not know about God and sin, would I go to hell? No, said the priest, not if you did not know. Then why, asked the Eskimo earnestly, did you tell me? You know? <laughs> so, one great Zen master taught that to be free is to be without anxiety about imperfection. And what that says is that the given is imperfection as the messiness of these bodies and these emotions and what other bodies and emotions do. That's the given. And to be without anxiety means to not then add on that second arrow of reacting, making wrong. It usually, usually the anxiety comes in the form of blame anger. But to be free from the second arrow, to have this world in all its messiness and confusion and hurt and mix up and not to add that quality of wrongness. So what I'd like to explore tonight is how we can cultivate that quality of presence which really has to do with honesty and kindness so that when we hit the imperfections we can pause and not add on the the proliferation, the chain reaction that locks us into either feeling like a bad self or locks someone else into being an enemy. Okay? So maybe take a moment. Let's just um, check in and see what you might... Because as you know, I usually ask you to apply whatever we're talking about to something in your life and um, trust you not to go into something that's too traumatic or would bring up too much for a being in a large group. But you might just take a moment to pause and sense if right now you're in any kind of reactivity, anxiety or anger, towards your own imperfections or towards another's. and just sense what it's like to be in that kind of reactivity, to have the second arrow of this is wrong, I'm wrong, or you're wrong. Whether it's in the form of fear, fear about your own imperfections or another's, or whether it's angry blaming, just sense what it's like. The Buddha called it suffering because the description is that when we're adding the second arrow we become very imprisoned in a very small limiting sense of self. So sense, just get familiar with what the selfing feeling is like when you're sensing imperfection and reacting to it. And you might try on this um, kind of teaching or mantra 
by exploring, well, what would it be like, even for a moment, if I could be, really be without anxiety or out, without anger towards this imperfection? What would that be like? Maybe you can touch it. Maybe there's a glimmer of just who you'd be if you just weren't living inside a anxiety about the what's wrong. So in a way it's just a moment where you're giving permission for you or another to be as you are. Where there's a quality of forgiveness, meaning space, that there's not a, not a blaming, not making wrong. And then uh, open your eyes, come on back. Now, if it were easy to release anxiety or anger about imperfection, we'd do it. But it's not easy. Sometimes when we do that reflection, we can get a glimmer and there can be this like, wow, could you imagine just moving through your life and not being, sensing all the conditioning that you know about yourself, but just not being anxious about it. That, okay, that's just the human conditioning. And there can be this glimmer of, wow, what, what a space of freedom that would be to just let it be okay that we're just how we are, you know? But then usually what kicks in is um, that that doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work for us is because if we're not anxious or angry about it, it'll never change. That's our, it's called a complex equivalence. That it's our anxiety and our fear and our reactivity that's going to make it different. And we'll get passive and we'll indulge ourselves or another. So it's just interesting to reflect on this that what we consider wrong or imperfect is deeply wired in tendencies to every body-mind. And I read you, this is Wes Nisker because I like the way he describes it. He says, dissatisfaction and reactivity with ourselves and with the world appear to be built into the human condition. And although that may sound cruel, it is apparently in the best interest of our survival. The brain maintains a certain degree of unease running continuously, keeping us monitoring the world for some advantage or danger, always a little on edge and ready for action. The motor may lie somewhere within the brain stem, perhaps in the reticular activating system or in the lateral hypothalamus. Experiments on several animal species indicate that we share this perpetual unease with many forms of life and have inherited it directly from those in the jungle or on the savannas who needed to stay on full-time alert for both predators and prey. Eat or be eaten was the law by which they lived. It appears that our survival brain is always trying to anticipate negative situations, looking ahead and rehearsing for disasters. That is useful for a long life, if you call that living." So we are conditioned to be vigilant, we're conditioned to look for advantage, we're conditioned to be aggressive, we're conditioned to be defensive, we're conditioned to cover over ourselves and and we're conditioned to be devious so we don't get attacked. All this stuff is conditioned. And we're conditioned to have aversion towards our conditioning and be down on ourselves for it. (laughs) It's really true. It's all part of our conditioning. It's our conditioning to have all that imperfect conditioning and to be at war with ourselves for it. So um, 
one of the questions I was just teaching in New York this weekend and we were exploring this some was that um, if so much of the teachings, the Dharma teachings are to forgive ourselves, to accept ourselves, to really be without anxiety about imperfection and yet it's part of our survival strategy to be uptight. I mean, how can we... it's counter the conditioning. How do we go against that? And the truth is we can't will ourselves to let go of anxiety or anger. We can't will ourselves to forgive ourselves. We can't will ourselves to forgive another. Because that's another small self-strategy. The self can't will itself. But there is another possibility, which is that the more awareness there is of the conditioning, including the conditioning to be at war, the more we're aware of that, the less we're identified with it. And the letting go happens spontaneously. So I want to say that again, that, that a self can't will itself to forgive, to be accepting. We can't will any of that. But what's possible is that there's already awareness here waking up. And as that awareness recognizes, oh, at war, oh, that doesn't feel good, oh, compassion, there's a shift in identity. The freedom that comes from being without anxiety about imperfection is the freedom of knowing that who you are is not the imperfect self. Otherwise you'll be anxious about imperfection. But if you begin to realize that what you are is that awareness, that presence, that mystery, that can't even in any way be described as a self, then these waves we're not so anxious about. It's not a dissociating. It's not saying, oh, that imperfect self is not me. I think of it more, and I use the metaphor a lot, like an ocean and waves. When we're suffering, when we're anxious about imperfection, we're identified with a set of waves that's judging its waviness. Okay, does that make sense? Our identity is collected around a set of waves we've evaluated as being bad waves. That's us, and we're the bad waves. As we bring awareness to that, we reopen to inhabiting a sense of the ocean, of awareness. The waves are part of our being, but they don't define us. We're not limited to them. And because of that, when we... and this can't be conceptual, when you viscerally sense that the what you are is this presence, this tenderness, this mystery that's listening right now, when you intuit that, then there's space for the ways of conditioning to be there but not to condemn them because there's not a self that's identified. So we begin to look more closely at how this conditioning to be so anxious about imperfection happens. And, and we are all, you know, we're talking about if you can be aware of a bigger identity you won't be anxious. But we're all taught that what we are is smaller. I mean, our, the messages from our culture and our family is you're a self and you're a self that's either doing really well or you're a self that's screwing up. But we're given that message over and over again. So it doesn't come real easily that we sit back and go, oh, I'm the ocean, you know. We've learned that we're a particular constellation of waves. And often not really waves that are doing so well. 
One of the little readings I like is of a little girl watching her mother clean the kitchen. And she noticed that her mother has several strands of white hair sticking out in contrast on her brunette head. So the little girl says, So, Mom, why are some of your hairs white? And her mother replied, Well, every time that you do something wrong or make me cry or unhappy, one of my hairs turns white. (laughs) The little girl thought about this revelation for a while and then she said, Mama, how come all grandma's hairs are white? <laughs> but it's really in our culture, you know, and I've, I've ended up speaking and writing about this a lot, that it's in our culture to sense that something's wrong with me and it's bad and I have to fix it. And what's so interesting to me is that so much of our humor is to kind of point out the human foibles because there's a relief when we're not taking it personally and it just, oh, it's kind of slapsticky or, oh, look what, look what, how we're all making fools of ourselves. It's this relief. It's not just me, you know. So um, somebody sent me this a few years ago about some news headlines I thought I'd share. Plane too close to ground, crash probe told. Miners refused to work after death. Two sisters reunited after 18 years in checkout counter. (laughs) Police begin campaign to run down jaywalkers. (laughs) Kids make nutritious snacks. Typhoon rips through cemetery, hundreds dead. (laughs) I like that one. Prostitutes appeal to Pope. (laughs) Just two more. Astronaut takes blame for gas in space. Last one, something went wrong in, de- in jet crash, experts say. So, and it goes on. Oh, wait, I'll give you one more. This is, uh, I'll end on a high note. Marijuana issue sent to joint committee. <laughs> so, so we like the mistakes, you know. There's all sorts of ones. There's ones on advertisements for church sermons and children's interpretations of the Bible. I used to read them to my son because he was so anxious about not being the best that he often wouldn't try things that he hadn't tried before. So I'd read him those bloopers, you know. And these are playful examples, but the fear of imperfection can be crippling. Um, and we know it. There's different degrees of it depending on our biology and our messages from our family and so on. But to the degree that we're anxious about not being okay, to that degree we end up either taking refuge in anger at others, anger at ourselves. We're always having to protect ourselves or show ourselves to be a certain way. It's really very difficult to be spontaneous and it's difficult to play because it's too dangerous, because deep down I'm flawed and they'll find out and I'll be rejected. So how to wake up from that trance of um, how we wrap ourselves around that something wrong feeling? How do we wake up from it? And there's three parts and it's, this is hopefully going to be very familiar and the first thing is as soon as we catch on that something's going on that there's that sense of self and sense of bad, mistake, you, me, somebody's wrong that we pause. That's the first thing, that we stop our doings. 
Because usually what's happening is when we're anxious or angry about imperfection as our mind starts spinning very fast, we go into compulsive thinking. In fact, compulsive thinking is a flag that we're afraid of imperfection, that we're trying to control the universe because something's going to go wrong. Pause. I shared with some of you some, I think it was last month, this story about Harry Houdini that I think is very compelling, that he would travel through Europe and visit small towns and challenge local jailers to first put him into a um, straitjacket and then into a cell. And then he'd delight the townspeople by just somehow or other tearing off the straitjacket and, you know, bursting out of the cell. But in one Irish village he ran into trouble. So in front of the townspeople he was able to get rid of the straitjacket, but no matter what he did, he couldn't pick that lock. He was just stuck. So everybody went home disappointed. And he said to the jailer, so, you know, what happened? I mean, what, did you find some incredibly sophisticated new lock that no one's ever heard of? And the jailer said, nah, it's a normal lock. I just knew how good you were and I just left it unlocked. <laughs> so he had been locking himself in. Do you understand in terms of we try to use our thinking and our self-defending and our figuring and our planning and our worrying to unlock the lock. We're feeling trapped in some intolerable, uncomfortable feeling of, ooh, imperfect, bad situation. So we get really busy and we try to, we're trying to get out of it. And it's usually mental busyness. Just watch. Have to pause just have to stop the thinking because it's in the pause that the wisdom and the compassion can begin to surface that can help to free us from that trance of something's wrong. After we've paused, because what we've got going then is this something wrong feeling, the practice is exactly how we describe it here. If there's an ocean with waves, it's to be with the waves and not to keep going back into the thoughts of she said this and he didn't do that and I shouldn't have... Come back to what's going on in your body, the felt sense. Okay. Now I'll share with you um, one of the reasons I wanted to give this talk this week is a woman called me who had lost her mom uh, about a month and a half ago and she was really stuck in this reactivity to imperfection and here's how it went. She's herself dealing with a lot of chronic sickness, lives on the East Coast, her parents live in the Northwest, but she was managing their whole medical situation. It was way too complex and her father's Alzheimer's and so on. So um, she was told that her mother was stable and she had a heart condition but she was told she was stable and then And because this woman herself is sick, she couldn't just go out there and hang out. She needed to kind of be given some notice. And so she was told, she kept checking in, and then all of a sudden, uh, on a Friday, she she was told her mom wasn't going to last the weekend and to get there right away. She flies out west, and um, her mom's already unconscious. And they have some, you know, she feels very, very present with her, and there's some real loving feelings, but her mom dies without ever coming to consciousness. So there's a real sorrow that she missed out on that. But she just, it was, oh, well, that's just how it is. But then she found out that the doctors actually knew her mother was in critical condition before that, but didn't want to alarm her mother, and in, for whatever reason did not um, communicate 
And this, and if they had, she would have flown out west earlier. And her mother had said many times, I really want to see you before I die. And so it was very much in her wanting to come through for her mother, wanting her mother to have that moment of conscious recognition. So you can imagine the level of outrage that she hadn't been given the information she needed to make a decision that would have allowed her to have contact, right? So when she called me um, last week, she was in a rage. I mean, she was grieving. It's not that she was disconnected from her grief, but she was in a rage that how imperfect a death it was, how the whole process was imperfect. Part of it was blaming herself, like somehow or other I should have known and I should have been there and I let my mother down. Imperfect, imperfect, and that's this huge grip of anxiety about how will I ever be able to live with myself? Okay, does this all make sense? And part of it, of course, was a tremendous rage at the uh, doctors that didn't give her the information. So our process together was that she expressed what she needed to express and then we had a pause and I said, okay, so just sense how that all feels, that anger, that rage. And, and she says, it feels awful, but there's no way I can let it go. I can't forgive them and I can't forgive myself. And I said, don't even try to let it go. Just let yourself feel the awfulness and let the anger and the feelings be as big as they are. But see if you can keep coming out of the story and stay with your body. Critical piece right here. Stay with your body. And she let the anger get really, really big. She gave it free free expression to just kind of be as, as full as it was. And when she did that, it dropped in a very deep way into what was underneath, which was fear that she couldn't live with the heartbreak and then the heartbreak itself. And she weeped deeply, wept. So then it was staying with those waves just feeling the depth of loving and losing. Which, by the way, that is, that is a portal because no longer was she caught in a small self-story, she was just feeling the purity of loving and losing. And when she could open to that space, and that is a very pure space, then a memory of the time she had been in the hospital emerged that she had kind of pushed away in her anger. And it was when she had been alone with her mom and there was this way in which she was just speaking, it was almost nonsensical, just saying words that came out of the depth of loving and her mom was having these kind of unconscious body responses but there was some sense of this resonance field that was beyond question. They were in a resonance field together of attunement. And she said, all I knew was there was an incredible mystery there that I could never explain of of our togetherness. And I said, do you trust that? And she said, absolutely. I absolutely trust that. And then we we spent a little more time together, but she said to me, I feel like God's great test for me. And then she laughed and said, Tara, I don't believe in God. But anyway, God's great test for me right now (laughs) is am I going to believe my fearful stories about what's wrong or am I going to trust my heart? And this is really kind of at, at the, the essence of waking up out of this trance of um, believing something's wrong, is that if we can stay with the, in our body, the feelings that are difficult, the waves, we can come to our heart's truth. 
but if we get lost like Houdini in, in trying to get ourselves out of the cage by thinking our way and defending our way and blaming our way, we never come to the heart's truth, back to that mystery that's so much deeper than wrongdoing or right doing. We can't come home to it. Mahatma Gandhi said, the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. And by the weak, just meaning we're weak when we're identified just as a small self. If we're in our identity as small victimized self, of course we can't forgive, it's too unsafe. It'll happen again, we'll be hurt again. But the strength is really the strength of realizing a deeper, wider truth of who we are. And if we can begin to touch that oceanness, then we can forgive. So I've watched for myself over the years um, how my relationship with my own imperfections has shifted. Um, I'm always aware whenever I give a a talk, and I've mentioned this before, if I give a talk on fear, then I get plenty of fear to work with. I'm really, really trying not to give too many talks on death and dying, but that's kind of silly, I know. (laughs) But but I I know if I give a talk on anxiety about imperfection, I'm going to have to face how am I relating to imperfection, because I am totally aware of how much of this body-mind conditioning is imperfect. I think it's what got me to write Radical Acceptance, the book, because I so easily, in the early days, my, I could see the imperfections, my own judgmental nature, how intolerant or impatient or reactive or controlling. I could see all that stuff. And then, as I described earlier, I could see the conditioning, and then my conditioning was to hate myself for my conditioning. And I realized that that was an endless loop and that the only freedom was to begin to be very kind and present with just, okay, this is the inner weather. This is the inner weather. And it's not to say indulge it. In fact, I found that the more I am kind and present with with the sense of what's wrong or imperfection, the more I arrive back in a place where I can respond much more intelligently. It's really when I'm feeling bad about myself that I get myself in more trouble. So I've watched over the years, and as I mentioned in the early days, I would either be very defensive or I would be full of blame. And I've watched how one of the main um, kind of turning points for me was uh, about ten years ago I had my first bout of really getting like a humbling kind of sickness where it just lasted for a long time. And the more I would feel fatigue or unpleasantness, the more um, I would be self-centered and feel um, intolerant and irritable and, you know, everything in the world was an impingement in some way. And I really didn't like... I mean, everything I was trying to teach and live to was a sense of spacious and open and accepting and allowing. And here I was in this really kind of... um, edgy place. So I really tried to well it away and I tried to use all my meditations to get rid of that kind of um, irritability. Um, I I really tried to transcend it and nothing worked. Like I couldn't get out of it. I couldn't like myself. And then finally um, there was a surrender. 
I couldn't be different. So I had to surrender to, oh, this is just how it is right now. And with that surrender, there was this enormous compassion. Like instead of trying to be different and better, there was like, oh, this is just the conditioning of how it is right now. And with that compassion, actually, it loosened things up so I was able to work with my life with a little more inner freedom. But that taught me something, because even when I'm not sick, when I'm caught in conditioning and not liking myself, it's like I can want to be different, but I can't will myself. All I can do is be more aware. And so I found over again with myself and with other, when I'm either making myself wrong or other people wrong, it is a flag saying, just pause and be aware and feel what's happening in your body. Stop the churning. Stop the Houdini thing of trying to fix things. So thus far, what we've talked about to wake up from this trance of what's wrong with me or what's wrong with you is to pause, to, wake, to get out of the thinking and just to be with the waves of the feeling. So as this woman Maria did, she just felt the anger and then felt the fear and then felt the grief and that allowed her to then come back home to a much larger space of presence. That's being with the waves. Now there's another part to this, the last piece of tonight's uh, talk, which is that in addition to being with the waves, when we're feeling really imperfect or that somebody else is imperfect, we can also intentionally remember goodness. Because whenever we're at war with ourselves, or at war with others, there's something we're forgetting. It's always true. The very nature of trance is that there's something we're forgetting. So just that wisdom that says, okay, I'm forgetting. How can I remember something larger? Begins to um, wake us up. This is Rumi. How to cure bad water? Send it back to the river. How to cure bad habits? Send me back to you. There is a secret medicine given only to those who hurt so hard they can't hope. The hopers would feel slighted if they knew. Look as long as you can at the friend you love, no matter whether that friend is moving away from you or coming back toward you. Look as long as you can at the friend you love. So what does that mean? What does that mean when you are absolutely caught in sensing that something's wrong with my life, something's wrong with me, or something's wrong with you? It means that in some way we try to look through the eyes of the beloved, we try to remember love, we try to remember beauty, we try to remember what we're forgetting. And we let other people help us remember. With Maria, at some points during it, she would tell me how much pain she was in at letting down her mother, and my mirroring would be, and I can hear underneath that that it's because of how much you love your mother. And to just be reminded, okay, it's the loving, was part of what helped her to come home. And now, in aftermath, last she just wrote to me, she said her meditation is just to remember that mystery moment because it absolutely has such truth to it that she inhabits again that visceral sense of here we are together with her mother. Look as long as you can at the friend you love.
because it cuts through, that loving cuts through the conditioning of making something sinful and wrong. If we can let our hearts be undefended, if we can open to loving, it's as if if you know you're the ocean, you're not afraid of the waves. There's room. So we look for the goodness, we see it in ourselves, and that becomes a reflection. It's very much part of the loving-kindness practice in Buddhism. And we look for it in each other. When we're stuck, when we're anxious or angry about imperfection, it's one of the pathways that softens us and reawakens us to truth. A um, story I wanted to share tonight is about a man who did that. He's a police officer, so he describes his way of working. And he says, now there are two theories about crime and how to deal with it. The anti-crime guy says, you've got to think like a criminal. And some police learn that so well they get a kind of criminal mentality themselves. How I'm working with it is pretty different. I'm a peace officer. I see that man is essentially pure and innocent and of one good nature. Now it's interesting how this works. When you are holding in thought a vision of unity and good, you frequently spot a criminal motive arising or evident in someone. It's kind of a spiritual radar. Crimes can be prevented that way. So I work not only to prevent crimes, but to eliminate its causes in fear and greed, not just the social causes everyone talks about. Even when it gets to conflict. I had arrested a very angry man who singled me out for real animosity. When I had to take him to a paddy wagon, he spat in my face. That was something. And he went after me with a chair. We handcuffed him and put him in the truck. On the way, I just had to get past this picture of things, and again I affirmed to myself, this guy and I are brothers in love. When I got to the station, I was moved spontaneously to say, look, if I've done anything to offend you, I apologize. The paddy wagon driver looked at me as if I was totally nuts. (laughs) The next day, I had to take him from where he had been housed overnight to the criminal court. When I picked him up, I thought, well, if you trust this vision, you're not going to have to handcuff him. And I didn't. We got to a spot in the middle of the corridor, which was the place where he'd have jumped me if he had that intention. And he stopped suddenly. So did I. Then he said, You know, I thought about what you said yesterday and I want to apologize. I just felt this deep appreciation. Turned out, on his rap sheet, he'd done a lot of time in a couple of bad prisons and had trouble with some harsh guards. I symbolized something. And I saw that turn around, a kind of healing. So what really happens if you're going to explore whether or not this vision of our true nature really has power? Many people will say you're taking chances without any vision. Your vision is your protection. Mindfulness and sacred presence bring the freedom we long for. Now, we can hear this kind of story and say, yeah, sometimes it turns out nicely, but, you know, if we're not in some way if we get seduced and in some way we're not aware of the shadow side, if we're not onto ourselves or onto others, then that creates more chance for violence. And just to say that being forgiving of imperfection, to not be anxious, to not be angry towards it, doesn't mean that we're not totally awake. It doesn't mean we're not totally intelligent about how we respond. But I've seen over and over how those who can pause 
and come into presence are able to respond to the imperfections, their own and others, in a way that actually moves towards healing. And those that are afraid or angry about the imperfections do actions that actually create more cycles of violence. So tonight we're really talking about uh, two different ways that when we're caught in some way at war with how it is, how we are, how others are, we can either pause and we can really feel in our bodies the unease and the fear and the hurt and in that presence reconnect with a larger presence. There's a shift in our sense of who we are. Rather than being the one who's been victimized or the victim, we become that field of presence and we can respond. The other pathway is to intentionally remember who is this being and who am I? In other words, the conditioning is true, but the who we are, that presence and that heart that's always timelessly here, that's what we usually forget. So there's a mystery we forget. We latch onto the what's wrong and we forget the mystery. So we'll do a short meditation. I want to um, first read you the words of Mary Oliver, who many of you know is one of my favorite poets. Still what I want in my life is to be willing to be dazzled, to cast aside the weight of facts and maybe even to float a little above this difficult world. I want to believe I am looking into the white fire of a great mystery. I want to believe that the imperfections are nothing, that the light is everything, that it is more than the sum of each flawed blossom rising and fading. And I do. I want to believe that the imperfections are no thing, that the light is everything, that it is more than the sum of each flawed blossom rising and fading, and I do. So if you will, just to close your eyes, because sometimes that can help you to connect, and to sense that when we wake up from our reaction to imperfection, in the space that's freed up, there's a flow that's possible. When we're busy defending, figuring and worrying, the world gets very rigid and small and tight. So as we pause, it's an opportunity again to sense where you might have been in reactivity in recent days, again, to your own imperfections, your own conditioning, to another's, to this world. to perhaps sense the belief underneath the reaction that something's wrong, that I'm flawed, another person's flawed, that kind of the tightness of sin, badness. 
So that you just sense the aversion. And if you can let the story step into the background and just feel in your body and your heart what it's like to live with these waves of wrong, this is wrong, bad, aversion, judgment, fear. So there's this honest, gentle presence with what you've been living with, the second arrow. some way if we can begin to just sense we can't make it different, we can't will it different, but we can be aware with gentleness of how it feels to fear, how, it fe- how the tight fist of anger feels, just to sense the suffering of that. There can be a compassion that's quite natural. Mm, So this is what I've been living in. This is the prison I've been trying to get out of. For some it helps just to put your hand on your heart and just sense that you're offering presence to this trance, to these waves. Just sensing that what you are is the presence, is the gentleness, that you can rest in a spaciousness and a tenderness that doesn't have to be anxious about imperfection, that can regard instead this conditioned human life with compassion, your own and others. That's possible. That's the freedom the Buddha promised. I want to believe the imperfections are no thing. They're not self. They don't belong or possessed by or define a self. That the light is everything, this presence. That this presence is more than the sum of each flawed blossom rising and fading. And I do. Just rest in the presence that's right here. And if there are waves of confusion or fear that still feel sticky, to truly honor that, not to try to push away or neglect, but just to include with courage and presence exactly what's here.
As you're sitting here, just to sense others in the room who also are bringing presence to conflict, to sense of their own imperfections to others, to sense this field of presence that's here that gets intensified as we deepen our attention. This presence that really is the awakened heart, a forgiving, compassionate presence that can heal the world. So in close with the prayer, may each of us and all beings recognize our true nature as love, as presence. May we hold this conditioned world, these bodies and minds, all beings, with wisdom and compassion. May there be peace on earth and may there be peace everywhere. May all beings awaken and be free. Namaste. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.